We're in the chapter of Acts, verse five, uh, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. But a man named Ananias, with his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Why is it that you have coveted, contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down, I'm sorry, and breathed his last breath. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young, man, the young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you told, sold the land for, so, for this much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord, behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband who are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last breath. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of all these things. May God bless the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. That one's a hard one to clap to. I get it. Um, I also get that it's really hot in here. Let me tell you a fun fact about our building. It's old. And um, the HVAC is old. So what we have to do is every season we have to try to time it perfectly when we switch from the HVAC to the boiler. Because once you switch it, you don't go back. And so we switched it, and now we are here, and it's spring again. <laughs> so hopefully it won't be fake fall for too long, and we'll be in real fall and real winter, and we'll be comfortable in here. Until then, just sweat a little bit and, you know, use your fans and all that. It'll be great. Like I said, that was a hard one to clap to. Um, if this is your first time here, I'm going to apologize in advance. This is going to be a, a, a fun one. Well, in March 2014, a sophomore at the University of Virginia named Danny Foley decided to pull the prank of his lifetime and bluff his way onto the bench of the University Cavalier basketball team. It was a simple prank and yet an incredibly daring prank, to say the least. You see, what he had done is he had noticed that all of the coaches on the bench had the same costume, so to speak, in his mind. They wore a navy suit, they had a white button-down shirt with an orange tie and nice brown shoes. And so before the ACC championship game in 2014 against Duke, this guy Danny decided to go to Walmart and get his costume. He got his blue suit, his dress shirt, his socks, his shoes, his bright orange tie. He looked just like one of the coaches. There he is. It's a little bit blurry. 2014, the cameras weren't as good back then. But there he is. Now, once the game started... The hard part became getting on the bench. <laughs> so he was timing it, trying to find the perfect moment in the game, and there was a TV timeout. Uh, one of the players on the Virginia team had just uh, hurt his knee, and so he had a bloodied-up knee, and the coach was giving instructions, and he was like, this is the time, this is the moment. And so he just made his way right past the usher, waved, made his way right behind the cheerleaders, and sat right down on the bench. And nobody noticed. And so for the rest of the game, he finished as a coach for the Virginia Cavaliers. It was so great, though, he didn't stop there. After the game, his team actually won the championship. He got in line with the rest of the team, shook hands with all of the Duke players, and even with Coach K himself. And then he went and started celebrating on the court with everyone. He, he, he said in an interview with the Bleacher Report, he said, everyone just started jumping up and down. So I started jumping up and down, too. It was great. He got one of those t-shirts that said ACC champs, put it on over his suit. 
And by the time someone realized that he wasn't supposed to be there, he had run into the stands, and within 10 minutes, he was on his way home. Here's one last picture of him in his T-shirt, I think. If not, that's okay. Um, no, it's okay. Um, what a prank, though, right? What a legend. I mean, this is what dreams are made of, at least my dreams. Um, it's amazing what you can pull off when you pretend to be someone else, isn't it? I read a different story about another one of those play actors who also just so happened to get busted in 2014. But this guy got busted after 18 years of lying. You see, he had become rich and incredibly famous by convincing the world that he was both deaf and an incredible composer. Uh, I have a slide of his uh, wonderful face. Mamoru Samurogachi, I think. Man known as the Japanese Beethoven, sold hundreds of thousands of records, was hailed as an inspirational genius, but after 18 years of a brilliant career was exposed as both not being deaf and not being a songwriter. You see, he'd actually had this ghostwriter write his music for 18 years. And he would threaten this ghostwriter with all kinds of things if he had ever uh, tried to give him up. And then finally the ghostwriter gave him up and he was exposed for the fraud that he really was. The truth is, you can come up with a good story. And if you can perform that story with some level of skill... You can convince just about anyone that you're someone or something that you're not. Isn't that right? You can fake your way to the top. Uh, you can act your way into glory. You can lie your way into power. We're about to vote on Tuesday for a bunch of people doing this very thing right now. We don't even know it yet, but they're lying to us. It's exactly what Ananias and Sapphira were doing or trying to do in the church 2,000 years ago. See, at this point in time, the church is full of power. The church is full of unity. They're seeing all kinds of growth. All kinds of signs and wonders are being performed through them, through the apostles. Many people are being added to their number day after day. At the end of chapter 4, we see that they're selling their land and they're bringing the money to the apostles so that the apostles can distribute it to all who have need. And it's an incredible time to be a part of the early church. That's how Acts chapter 4 ends. Acts chapter 5 starts with that little three-letter word, but one of those guys who had given money was a guy named Barnabas at the end of chapter 4. Barnabas literally means the son of encouragement. It was his nickname. His real name was Joseph. And Barnabas, he sold such a massive piece of land. It was such a generous gift that um, he got a ton of recognition for it. Now, I don't know how many people were in the room when he brought the money to the apostles' feet. Maybe it was dozens Maybe it was hundreds. We don't really know how big the space was at the time. But we know that word spread like wildfire. And it was so significant that it's even recorded for us in the Bible. Barnabas sold his land and gave it to the church. And all of a sudden, this guy is famous in the city. All of a sudden, he is at the top of a growing viral movement. He's on a first-name basis with the apostles. He calls Peter, James, and John close friends. And he is famous in the city of Jerusalem. Um, we don't know if Ananias and Sapphira were in the room when he gave the gift, but I do know beyond a shadow of a doubt that they wanted what Barnabas had. They wanted to be at the top they wanted to be on a first-name basis with the apostles. They wanted to be people that mattered. Do you want to be a person that matters? They wanted to be people that mattered in this movement. They wanted to be famous in Jerusalem. And so they thought, man, if we can follow in Barnabas' footsteps, we would get these things. Only problem with Ananias and Sapphira, as we just read, is that they didn't actually want to follow in his footsteps. They didn't really want to give up their money. They didn't want to sacrifice for the kingdom of God. And so instead of following in his footsteps, they put on masks, they put on costumes, and they put on a show. Guys, let me tell you something, and I want you to hear this, because this is what we're going to be talking about today. The church has two enemies. And it has had these two enemies since its formation 2,000 years ago. Persecution from the outside which we just prayed about, and then pollution 
from the inside. Those are the two enemies of the church, and they have been for 2,000 years. Persecution from the outside, pollution from the inside. Which one do you think is the biggest threat to the church? Which enemy are you the most concerned about? Which one makes you anxious, keeps you up at night? Your freedoms disappearing? Or that sin that festers inside of you? Opposition on the outside or immorality in your heart? Which one do you care about the most? Which one do you think will lead you to hell? Which one do you think will render this church useless. I'll be honest with you guys, just full vulnerability right now. More often than not, the one that I'm the most scared of is the stuff out there. Anybody relate? Listen to me. The greatest hindrance to the power and vitality and effectiveness of the church will never be persecution from outside. The greatest hindrance to the power and vitality and effectiveness of the church will always be pollution on the inside. Guys, listen to this. I'm going I'm to prove it to you. I told you, welcome if this is your first time. Um, so... Satan tried to intimidate and threaten the church. He tried the persecution thing. That was all of chapter 4. Like we just saw it. The apostles are preaching Jesus. The enemy hates it. The world hates it. And so they bring the apostles in and they threaten them with everything they can possibly threaten them with. And guess what? It doesn't work. They just pray more and they get more power and they get more of the presence of God. And then the gospel spreads more. And so the enemy is like, well, that didn't work. Let's try another strategy. Let's get inside their hearts. Let's get inside their motives. Let's go after their ambition. Absolute disaster for the prince of darkness in chapter 4. The advance of the gospel will never be stopped by persecution from the outside. Do you believe that? We're going to see that more in chapter 8. It's actually incredible. Chapter 8 shows us that not only does the gospel advance in spite of persecution, but the gospel always advances because of persecution. But that's Acts 8. We got four chapters to go before we get there. Persecution from the outside has never been our biggest threat. It has always been pollution within. So before the pollution could spread, God took it out. Look back at the text. Verse 4. Peter said, why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man. You've lied to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. Young men rose, wrapped him up, and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to attest the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and then they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Now let me just make a quick caveat Nobody was commanded to sell their possessions and give it to the church. Um, that was not an expectation. In fact, earlier in the story that Doug just read for us, Peter's like, why did you do this? You didn't have to do this. You didn't have to sell your land. You didn't have to give us the money. Why did you lie to us? Why did you lie to the Holy Spirit? So God cut it out. Guys, listen, it's no coincidence. Look at your Bibles if you have your Bibles. What is the title of the next heading? It is no coincidence that the heading of the very next section is many signs and wonders done. You know why it's no coincidence? We're going to talk about this a lot next week, but listen. The power of God 
always comes as a direct result of the purity of his church. And so God purifies the church in one section, and the very next section, it is many signs and wonders are done. There's no coincidence. Guys, we don't get the presence of God without purity. We don't get the power of God without purity. We don't get answered prayer without purity. We don't get signs and wonders without purity. The gospel will remain at a standstill in this city until we repent of our sin in our hearts and turn to God with open and honest recognition of who we are before him. Guys, purity does not mean perfection. So I need you to hear that. Purity is not perfection. Purity is is authenticity. Purity is saying, God, here I am. And by the way, you know me better than I do, so just expose more of me than I can't see. That's purity. It's being genuine before God. It's not going to God in prayer and trying to manipulate him or trying to lie to him and deceive him so that he gives you what you really want, which is another God. That's purity, authenticity. Purity is taking the costume off. It's getting rid of the charade. It's letting go of the pretense and living an honest and genuine life before our creator. And again, I'll tell you, the reason the church in America is on life support right now is because we don't get it. Talk more about it at the end. Before we get there, we got to answer some really important questions about God and his character. Are you asking these questions in your head right now? Because I was, as I was, okay, the questions. The main point of this story is not Ananias and Sapphira and the fact that they lied. The main point of this story is that God struck them dead on the spot. What kind of God is that? And how are we supposed to respond to it? This story is a story not mainly about the hypocrisy of Christians. Even more than that, it is a story about the holiness of God. And again, if you were with us all week, if you've been in an MC, I'm preaching to the choir. You could preach it with me because we did holiness all week. Here's the question. It's got a couple of facets to it. If you're taking notes, this is my question to you. I might have this. Hazel, I'm not sure. Why was God so swift in his judgment of Ananias and Sapphira and yet so patient with us today? That's my question, at least. Why did God kill them for their deception? But every single one of us are still standing here today, breathing, worshiping, singing, praying. You're listening to me right now. Why why aren't we dead yet? I love how Dr. Barnhouse once put it. He said, if God acted in the same way today that he did in the fifth chapter of Acts, you'd have to have a morgue in the basement of every church and a mortician on the pastoral staff. And by the way, there wouldn't be a pastoral staff. We'd all be dead. So what's going on? Have you ever lied or exaggerated before so people would think you're more spiritual than you actually are? Yep. Have you ever cared more about your appearance than your authenticity? Actually, we all do that as humans. That, that's actually the psychology that proves our authentic self itself is a myth. There is no authentic self. We are what we think other people think we are. It's insane. Has your service in the church ever been motivated by selfishness or greed or pride or glory hunger? You're just looking for the pat on the back. You didn't get it enough at home growing up. And so you got to get it from somebody else. Yep. So, why are we still breathing? My wife, Caroline, served on the usher team this morning for the first time. Why wasn't she holding a body bag at the door? You know what I mean? That's the question. There are two answers to this question, and then we're going to get to the application. First, God was so swift in his judgment back then because it was a pivotal time in the life of the church. 
They've got the mission of God. They've got the power of God. Now they've got this brand new epiphany called the church of God, which is where the people of God draw the nations back into his presence. That's what the church is. We just sang it. We became priests to God. Priests are, are the bridge between God and, and, and man. Um, we, we saw this last week when we were talking about holiness, that the temple was the thin place. The thin place where the veil between the divine and, and the mortal was not that thick. And, and you could interact and the priest would make sacrifices for you and you could pray and your prayers would be answered. And you could go in for healing and you would be healed and you could go in for transformation and you'd be transformed. That's what the temple was. And so now the church is essentially this new temple and we are the church. So we're little temples and we're little priests going around with the keys of the kingdom as thin places into the darkness saying, I'm bringing Jesus with me to invite you in. And so when people interact with us, we are now where they have prayers answered. It was so funny, I was talking to Caroline, one of, her, one of her closest friends from way back in college when she studied abroad in Australia, so far from God. But do you know who this girl reaches out to when she needs prayer? Caroline. Because she's actually seen those prayers answered. Because when the people of God pray, stuff happens. And so, so we are the temples and we are the priests. We're the thin places going out and inviting the nations back in. We're the new temple. In order for that to actually happen, guys, listen. Pollution's got to be cut out. We can never stand in the presence of God. Everyone who, who came into any type of close encounter with the presence of God in the Old Testament and the New Testament fell flat on their faces and started weeping, woe is me. In the New Testament, can you get this, wrap your mind around this, John, who is, who is called Jesus' closest friend, okay? The, the disciple John, the beloved disciple in Revelation, he gets this vision of heaven. And at the beginning of it, he sees Jesus, his best friend, his savior, oh, his teacher. He loves his Messiah. And he sees him in his glorified state and he falls fat, flat on his face in terror. And Jesus says, stand up, don't be afraid. We can't stand in the presence of God. So if we want to be temples and we want to be priests and we want to be thin places that invite people into the presence, we've got to be pure ourselves. Does that, does that make sense? Okay, so we see the same thing happen in the Old Testament. God is ushering his people into the land that he promised them. It's a pivotal time for Israel. It's absolutely vital that they submit to the lordship of God. But a man named Achan rebels. A man named Achan decides to steal some treasure and bury it under his tent. And so then the people of Israel go to war. 36 men die. 36 families are weeping and mourning for the loss of their husband and their fathers, right? And so, so what does God do? In that moment, he finds where the pollution is in the camp because it's a pivotal moment. They're about to take the promised land that God has given them. They've got to be pure. The nations are going to be drawn to God through them. And so he finds Achan, realizes he was the pollution, and Achan is dropped on the spot. It's Ananias and Sapphira, it's just in the Old Testament. Yahweh's name had been dishonored. The reputation of the people of God had been crippled among the nations. It had to go punished. It would have kept Israel from carrying out its purpose in the land. Same thing is happening in Acts. God is ushering his people into a new era. He's giving them a new mission to make a name for him among the nations and draw all people's tribes and tongues to himself. But the sin of Ananias and Sapphira put all of that in jeopardy. Look at how one scholar put it. He said, the way Ananias and Sapphira attempted to reach their goals was so dramatically opposed to the whole thrust of the gospel that to allow it to go unchallenged would have set the entire mission for the church off course. In order for the people of God to carry out the mission of God and the power of God, they had to be pure before him. So he cleansed them and he took out 
the culprits. Okay, that's the first answer. There's a unique season. It's a unique time, but that's not all. God was so swift in his judgment back then because it was pivotal, but there's something else, and this is where we're going to camp out. Sometimes God interrupts his regular pattern of mercy with swift justice to remind us that he's holy. Sometimes God interrupts his regular pattern of mercy with swift justice to remind us of his holiness. You know, for us, it doesn't seem fair and it doesn't seem just that Ananias and Sapphira were killed on the spot without any thought of a second chance. At least that's my thought. That doesn't sound like the God that I'm used to. That doesn't sound like the God I grew up with. The God that we're used to is full of mercy and grace and love and compassion. This seems like the opposite of that. How does the death penalty for telling a lie equal justice? That seems harsh. That's irrational. That seems whimsical. That seems arbitrary. That seems capricious. That seems like he just... Blew a fuse. This doesn't sound like the God I know. Doesn't it seem a little cruel to you? Now we have examples of this in the Old Testament, like Aaron's sons in Leviticus 10. They didn't follow the rules in the temple. Um, they were supposed to carry out a, a very strict prescribed ritual for how they were going to make sacrifices to the Lord. They decided it wasn't that big of a deal. So they... They made an offering to God, the text tells us, with strange fire, and God killed them on the spot. Now, at that point, Aaron is angry, and he is heartbroken. Aaron is Moses' brother, if you're new to the Bible, fresh out of uh, Egypt, okay? Um, he's just lost two sons. Seems like God is to blame, because God's the one who kills him. And so he goes to Moses, and he complains, just like every single one of us would. Leviticus 10. He says, how could God kill my sons for such a small transgression? Doesn't that seem cruel to you, Moses? I'm paraphrasing. Look at Moses' response in Leviticus 10, verse 3. This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be holy. And before all people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his Peace. In other words, Aaron, God told you what he expected. God told your sons how to behave, how to approach him. He laid out the rules. He said, I'm like the sun. If you want to walk on the sun and not get burned, here's how you do it. They didn't do it, and they got burned. They didn't obey. They didn't treat me as holy. And so I struck them down. Okay, that's one story. There's another story like that later on. It's a lot like it. The Ark of the Covenant's returned to Israel, 2 Samuel 6. Again, if you're new to the Bible, you might not know that the Ark of the Covenant was essentially the throne of God. It's where his glory presided. And so there were incredibly strict rules about how to handle this throne of God, of course. Um, it was precious, it was glorious, and it was dangerous. So one of the rules, first and foremost, was that it should never be touched by human hands, ever. And when it was moved, when it was carried, it had little, little rings on the side, almost like a casket, and there were, there were poles that went through those rings, and priests were supposed to carry them over their shoulders on this side and on this side, and they were supposed to walk while carrying the throne of God. This is just one of the rules, two of the rules, I guess. So the ark is being returned to Israel after it had been taken. And everyone's pumped. Like everyone's singing and dancing and cheering. The ark is coming back. The throne of God is coming back. The glory of God is coming back to our city. But it wasn't being carried by priests. It was on a cart being carried by oxen. And so some of these um, Levites or priests were walking alongside it to make sure it didn't fall. And one of, one of the families in the, in the tribe of Levi um, were the Kohathites. And, and, and so if you know anything about the Old Testament, you know that there were 12 tribes, but then there were lots of families within those tribes. 
The tribe of Levi was the tribe of priests. And in his family were lots of families, and the Kohathites were responsible for the precious things of God. They were responsible for the ornaments. And so every single one of those Kohathite priests, from the moment they could understand human language, were taught, when you handle the throne of God, you never put your hand on it. You never touch it. It's to be treated with awe and with fear and with respect. And when you carry it, you carry it like this, but the Kohathites weren't doing that. And so one of these Kohathites was a guy named Uzzah. And he's walking alongside the cart, and one of the oxen stumbles, and it looks like the throne of God is going to fall off the cart. And so Uzzah instinctively and immediately reaches out to save the ark from falling, and he puts his hands on the ark, and he is killed on the spot. God had told him, if you touch it, you die. Uzzah made a mistake. Uzzah believed that the dirt was more defiling than his hands. I got to save the ark from the dirt. What did the dirt ever do? The dirt has always only ever obeyed. It's just dirt. He said, I got to save the ark from defilement. And he forgot who he was. And he forgot that his hands weren't clean. I think he expected some gratitude. I think he might have expected a pat on the back. But he got death. So what in the world is going on in these stories? Uzzah, the sons of Aaron, Achan, Ananias, and Sapphira, all killed for what seems like really small transgressions. The punishments to me seem over the top, they seem harsh, they seem capricious again, but I think that they feel that way because they go against the regular pattern of patience and mercy and compassion and grace that we see over and over again in the Old and New Testament. That's the pattern. For example, we've, we've gone through Genesis now. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob do far worse things than those people that just got killed on the spot and none of them are killed. Saul, King Saul, makes a sacrifice outside the bounds of the law, just like the sons of Aaron, not killed. King David commits some of the worst sins you could ever imagine, not killed. Solomon takes 700 wives, 300 concubines, not killed. Jonah openly rebels and tries to run away from God. He isn't killed. I mean, I could go story after story after story after story. The regular pattern of the Old Testament is not an angry and capricious God. It is a God who is slow to anger and loyal and love and is a God of chance after chance after chance after chance after chance. And then by the time you get to the disciples, you see the same thing. You get to the Apostle Paul, you see the same thing. The regular pattern of God is to show mercy on those who don't deserve it. And so when things like this happen, it stands out. And, and it's shocking. It's a little horrifying. Psalm 103.8 says it like this. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loyal love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loyal love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. That is the regular pattern of God throughout Scripture. He does not deal with us according to our sins. Amen? Why is this his regular pattern? 2 Peter 3 tells us that he is patient with us and he's slow to anger because he actually wants to give us more time to repent 
That's the only reason. Here's the problem. More often than not, we don't let his mercy lead us to repentance. More often than not, we let his mercy lead us to complacency. In other words, rather than causing us to turn from our sin, God's mercy is usually used as an excuse to justify our sin. Anybody ever been there before? Like you sinned once and you expected lightning and there was no lightning. You expected death and there was no death and you're like, I guess he doesn't care. Maybe he's not going to do anything about it. Maybe it's not that big of a deal. Maybe he's not omnipresent. Maybe he's not all-knowing. Maybe he isn't inside of me. Maybe he missed this one. Or we think, you know what, I know God's regular pattern, and I know his regular pattern is a pattern of mercy and compassion and grace, and I know on Sunday I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to church and I'm going to pray and I'm going to confess my sin again, and I know he's going to forgive me so I can just do whatever I want. We assume his mercy, we abuse his mercy, we exploit his mercy, and then when God actually responds with justice, we have the audacity to get enraged to him and tell him that he isn't fair. I, I heard a story this past week. Let's lighten it up, okay? R.C. Sproul, uh, he's dead now, great uh, theologian, professor, um, he told a story about a time when he was a professor, where he was teaching freshmen. Um, and uh, he experienced almost the exact same thing in his classroom as he interacted with his students. You see, he had a class of 250 freshmen. And on the first day, he had to lay out all of the assignments, as professors always do. And on the syllabus, um, there were four short-term papers, like two to four pages long, okay? And, and he knew that he had to be clear with his freshmen because they're straight out of high school. They don't understand college. And, and he had to be clear with them so that they didn't miss the assignment, that they didn't try to find a loophole and they didn't try to tweak it or whatever. And he said, listen, it's an easy project. These are easy papers to write and I'm going to grade them leniently, but you have to turn them in on the exact date. No late papers will be accepted. And if you turn it in late, you're getting a straight F. So September 30th rolled around. This was the date of the first term paper. He had given them fair and good warning. And out of the 250 students, 225 of them showed up with their term paper. 25 of the students were standing there as he describes it, shivering and shaking and very nervous and so upset. This is the first F that they have ever received, many of them, and they're so nervous about their parents, and they said, oh, we didn't carve out enough time, and we didn't prepare like we should have. Please have mercy on us. Let us have a couple days extension, you know? Anybody ever been there before? This was college for me. And, uh, and so he said, okay, I'll give you a couple more days, but don't let it happen again. Next month, I want those paper papers here on time, October 30th. October 30th comes around 200 students roll in with their papers. If you're not good at math like me, that's 25 less. 50 of them said, oh, professor, everybody's papers were due this week. All of my other classes were due this week, and it's homecoming, and we had all of these activities and all of this stuff, and I ran out of time. Please have mercy on us. He said, okay, I'll give you a couple of days. They all clapped and cheered and thanked him for his mercy. He says almost immediately he became the most popular professor on the campus. Until November 30th came around, and only 150 students came in with their term papers. He says, the other 100 students walked in so casually like they were going out for lunch. Not a care in the world. Casual, relaxed, at ease. And Sproul said, hey, Johnson, where's your term paper? He said, hey, prof, yeah, you know, don't worry about it. I'll have it for you in a couple of days. Dr. Sproul took out his big black grade book, and he looked down at it, and he said, Johnson, F. And he looked up, and he said, Andy, where's your paper? And he said, I don't have it. F. 
Cunningham. You have your paper? No. F. At about that time, three people in, someone in the back of the room shouted out, can you guess what they shouted? That's not fair. It's not fair. Sproul looked in the back of the room. He said, Patrick, was that you? <laughs> Patrick said, yeah. Sproul looked at me and said, did you turn in your paper for last month? And he said, no. And so Dr. Sproul said, okay, Patrick, if you want justice, I'll give you justice. And he wrote F for both. And then he looked at everyone and he said, anybody else? Anybody else want justice? Guys, I want you to hear me. We don't understand the mercy of God. Because we think that since God is so quick to give mercy, that somehow he owes it to us. We think that if we get justice, somehow God is in the wrong and he's not being fair rather than causing us to turn from our sin and draw near to him. His patience actually causes us to believe that he doesn't care about our sin. He's not going to do anything about it. And so we stay in it and our hearts become hard. Hebrews 3 said, confess your sin one another day after day. That's another way of saying be pure, be authentic, be genuine. Just, hey, you know who you are, and you're a sinner, and, and you know who they are. They're a sinner too. So just confess to each other and pray for one another so that your heart doesn't become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin and lead you astray. Astray from what? Astray from God. We have stories like the sons of Aaron and Achan and Uzzah and Ananias and Sapphira. Do you know why they're in the Bible? To wake us up. Sometimes God interrupts his regular pattern of mercy with swift justice to remind us that he is holy. And if he is holy, his people should be holy too. Guys, listen to me. He might not be striking us down on the spot for putting on our masks today and covering up our sin. But it doesn't mean he doesn't care. If you are living in unrepented sin and you came into worship as if he's okay with it, the only reason you're still alive is because God is full of mercy and he wants to give you time to come home. Don't waste it. 2 Corinthians 7.10 For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, but worldly grief produces death. Have you ever felt bad about your sin? Okay, let me ask you something. Was that guilt worldly or was that guilt godly? The way you know if it was godly was if the guilt led to repentance, if it led you to change. Worldly guilt is I feel bad about it and I got to do some penance and I'm going to move on with my life and I'm just going to keep doing it over and over again. That leads to death. Don't be deceived. So my call to you today is that you would repent. That you would believe in the mercy of God. That you would receive the mercy of God that drives you to your knees and, cry, and causes you to cry out, Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live amongst the people of unclean lips. And I need God to save me. And I need this, the Spirit to renew me and transform me by His power. Okay, so how did the church in Acts respond? Look back at verse 11. Great fear came upon the whole church and upon all those who heard these things. Oh, guys, this is, this is so important. That word fear is the same exact word used in Acts 2.43. 
Look at it with me. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. That word awe is in the Greek, phobos. It's the same word as fear in Acts chapter 5. It's the word that we get phobia from, okay? Awe came upon all. And as a result of seeing God as he truly was, as holy and set apart and glorious and totally transcendent, all of a sudden they saw themselves as they truly were and they repented. And as a result of that, many signs and many wonders were done through them and countless thousands were added to their number day after day after day. It's the same exact thing. The prescription is there. If you want the power of God, you must be pure. So I'm saying again, church, I'm calling you again as I'm calling myself to open up, to be real. You know what enables us to do this? The cross. Can I tell you something amazing about the cross? Oh, there's so much. Do you know what gets killed at the cross? Pretense. Charades. You know why? Because if you show up with pre- and pretense, if you show up thinking that you're good, the moment you see the Son of God hanging for you, your pretense vanishes. You realize, whoa. If he had to go to that length to rescue me, I need help. But then you know what it does? It doesn't just reconcile us to God. It reconciles us to each other. And you realize as you look up, you're not alone. And there are people all around you. And you are all the exact same. No one is good. No one is better than anyone else. No one's figured it out. No one obeys the law. No one seeks God. Everyone is a beggar in desperate need of bread crying out for Christ's salvation. So then, when you get into Christian community with each other, you remember, oh wait, the cross said that we were all the same. So me pretending like I'm good is a joke. You pretend, it's so funny when people, when I ask people, hey, can I pray for you? Where are you struggling? I'm good. I'm just laughing like, okay, I'll pray for your line. Like, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Because the cross says no one's good. The cross says the Son of God had to die in your place. So you can take the mask off. And we can be authentic with each other and confess our sins to each other. And we can take the mask off with God because this is what else the cross says. We are more sinful than we could have ever imagined. That the cross tells us that because the Son of God had to die in our place. But we are more loved than we could have ever dared dream. Because the Son of God is hanging there for us. And so we don't have to hide from God because he loved us while we were still sinners. He gave his life while we were still at war with him, while we were still rebels. And so the gospel sets us free. Guys, God had a plan for his church and that plan required his presence and that plan required his power. And so if his people were going to carry out that plan, they had to remain pure. They couldn't slide into complacency. They couldn't get into the habit of putting on masks and pretending that they were better than they actually were. They couldn't fall into the rut. Oh, I hate this rut. Do you hate the rut of justifying sin and presuming upon grace? They couldn't do it. The holiness of God is what leads us to awe. And awe is what leads us to authenticity in our worship and effectiveness in our ministry. And so let me ask you a question, and then we're going to close. What matters more to you right now? How you look to people or who you truly are before God? What matters more? What do you think is more important? Looking spiritual or actually walking with the Spirit? Who is it in your life that you fear? Mortal men and women? Or the eternal King of heaven and earth?
Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, don't fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body. Why? Because he's holy. This is what I always have to go back to in my own life. This old song, Amazing Grace. That fear, that sense of holy awe and respect and reverence is a gift of grace. You remember that line? I've quoted it so many times. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, showed us who we really are in light of God's holiness. "'Twas grace that opened my eyes to the fact that he is so far removed for me and there's no way I can get back into his presence. But then it was also grace that relieved my fear. The hour I believed. Guys, that's the beauty of the gospel. It's the incredible wonder of God. His grace teaches our hearts to fear him because we need to fear him. And then... It relieves our fears and invites us in and tells us to call him Father. <laughs> the holy God who would strike us down for a lie says, no, you're covered. There is therefore now no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And because of the spirit that raised Christ from the dead is now in you, I'm inviting you into my presence. And you can cry out, Abba, Father, and I'll hear you, and I will never cast you out again. Nothing will separate you from my love. What? The gospel doesn't just show us a God of holy justice and wrath. It shows us a God who satisfied his own wrath by sacrificing his son for our sin. The righteous judge became the sacrificial lamb. And so here is the promise. If you repent of your sin and you turn to him in faith, you will be saved forever. And we as a church, if we walk openly before our God and honestly before our God and honestly before each other, and we do what Paul urged over and over again, pursue purity above all else, he will be present in our midst and his power will be manifest through us. And many signs and many wonders will be seen and experienced and the lost will be found and the blind will see and he will build his church and Charlotte will look like heaven. Amen? And so we need to pursue that. We need to experience his goodness and his mercy and we need to see him for who he really is. Would you stand with me?